Good morning, church. Man, it's good to see all of you guys here this morning. Man, I'm really excited uh, about the beginning of, of our new series today. Uh, we are uh, starting today with something called Decisions, Visions, and Lion Collisions. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks, uh, counting today, is we're going to walk through and take a look at the life of Daniel uh, through the book of Daniel that was written by Daniel about Daniel. All right, so there's a lot of Daniel that we're going to cover over the next several weeks, and I believe that, that what you're going to have the opportunity to see and what we're going to have the opportunity to learn together is how God works in the midst of our difficult circumstances. You know, Pastor Jonah, just, just ask some of you to, to lift your hand, and if you've got something that you're going on, that you have going on in, in your life, and the reality is that all of us from time to time are going to run into crisis, that we're going to run into to trials, and we're going to run into to troubles, and I think there's this kind of this general misconception oftentimes, not, not all the time, but oftentimes, especially for those who are outside of a relationship with God and maybe coming into a relationship with God or, 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 or whatever, or maybe even got sold kind of a bill of goods as to what a relationship with God would look like, and it was this idea that if you'll turn your life over to Christ, if you'll just give everything to God, then man, everything's going to work out for the best. And you know, you're going to make more money, and your kids are going to start behaving, and you know, your spouse is going to start to think exactly like you think, and you guys are going to have this awesome, wonderful relationship. Like, like Jesus is just going to fix everything for you. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever thought that. But the reality is that it sounds really cool. It's just not true. As a matter of fact, Jesus made a promise to his disciples and, and John recorded it for us. Jesus, Jesus said this, a promise. In this world, as a believer, if you choose to follow me as my disciples, in this world, you will, not maybe, not might, hey, be ready for, hey, look out for, no, no, no. You will have trouble. It's a promise. Jesus said it. In this life, you will have trouble. Here's what that means for all of us if we love Jesus. Here's the, here's the really warm, feel-good theme from my, message, from my message today. That you are either right now in the midst of trouble, or you're getting ready to be. <laughs> Welcome to Fusion City Church. We Be happy. You know, well, I mean, like, you're either in trouble, just got out of trouble, or just heading into trouble. Because in this world, you will face crisis. Jesus promised that we would. And I don't, I don't know about you, but, but, but I, I have times in my life, like these really deep and dark kind of just depressed and, and down kind of moments where I just look at, at situations, or I look at my life, and I, and I just kind of ask the question like, God, are you even, are you in that? Or I'll look and say, God, is it, is it necessary? I mean, is it really necessary for me to experience this amount of pain in order for your plan to be a common? Is this, is this, I mean, seriously, does it have to be like this? Now, I'm, I'm guessing that maybe at least a few of you might even not expect that, that, a, that a pastor, right, that a preacher, that a man of God would, would have those kind of doubts. But, but I do. 
I do. I, I think I have to. As a matter of fact, if, if you think you have doubts, my doubts are bigger than yours. You think you worry? I worry more than you do. I, I have to because it's kind of my job to just sit around and, and think about this kind of stuff. Because I, I don't want to get up here and be fake. I don't, want to, I don't want to kind of fake my way through the scriptures. And I don't want to get up here and tell you all the stuff that the Bible talks about and talk about it in theory. No, I, I, I take myself there. I spend some time just investigating kind of what I would call the, the edges of faith. And sometimes I, I hear your stories. And it, it just, man, it cuts the legs out from underneath my faith for a while. And I have to, man, I have to go back and I have to just... Get before God. God, I, is it really necessary for somebody to hurt that much? I mean, does, do they have to hurt that bad in order for your plan to be accomplished? Anybody else ever get there? Right? Like God, I mean, seriously, does, does it have to be like this? And so my, my go-to resource, the thing that I always go back to, if I, if I can't find it in scripture and I can't reconcile it through my prayer time and I just find myself doubting. This is what I do. I ask this question. Is there anybody, is there anybody in the Bible that experienced anything like what I'm going through or like what I hear somebody's going through that I know God loved? Like I know that God loved them and they went through it, therefore I'm going through it, and God still loves me. That's kind of where I end up. And so what I want us to do for the next several weeks is I want us to take a look at the life of Daniel. Because Daniel went through some stuff. I mean, just, it was, it's bad. And we're going to look at it today. Because I want us to answer this question as it pertains to our time together this morning. That when I bump up against crisis and when I bump up against trials and difficult times and when, when crisis hits my life, how do I prevent a crisis in my life from becoming a crisis in my faith? Because it's really easy. And we talked about this, uh, I think it's a, a couple series ago, that one of the main things that leads people away from the church is crisis. Like, I've, I've turned my life over to God. I gave him everything. I committed to him. I, I, I'm, I'm all about him, and I'll sacrifice for him. And then all this bad stuff happens, and all of a sudden it's like, God, I thought you and I were cool. Like, what in the heck is going on? And they leave. They leave the church. They leave the faith. They walk away. And yet, at the same time, do you know what one of the top contributing factors for the reason that people come back to church? It's crisis. Like something terrible went wrong in my life. And man, I got to get my butt back in church because apparently, because if I was in church, it would just, it just all work out. And so here's the question that I want us to answer today is how do I prevent a crisis in my life from becoming a crisis in my faith? How, how do we find some consistency in our walk with Christ as it pertains to faith? So let's take a look at Daniel Daniel's a cool guy, wrote a book in the Bible. Anybody that gets published, in the, that's like the bestseller of all time kind of writes. Like if you, you got a Pulitzer, that's like small cheese compared to people who are in the Bible. Like it's, it's just, so Daniel, obviously God loved. Let's take a look at his story. So Daniel chapter one, we'll begin in the beginning. It's a great place to start. In the beginning uh, of Daniel one, it says this. In the third year 
of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Look at verse 2. This is awesome. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so we're going to come back to that, but I want to stop there for just a moment. God made a promise. If you look over in the book of Deuteronomy, if you go back to chapter 8 or 28 in the book of Deuteronomy, God has this discourse with the people of Israel. It's Moses that's talking to them. And through Moses, God tells the people of Jerusalem, hey, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow me, if you'll stick with me, if you'll be my people and do things the way that I tell you, I, I will bless you and I'll honor you and I will give kingdoms to you and I will put other kingdoms into your hand. It's like, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? And then, but then he flips the script and he says, but if you disobey me, if you do the things that I tell you not to do, if you take your eyes off of me, then I will give you into the hands of other nations. And we fast forward a couple hundred years into the, to the story of Daniel. And here we see exactly what God said he would do. He did. The people of God, the people, the Israelites, they disobeyed God. They turned their attention and their affection off of him. And so here in Daniel chapter 1, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, you and I and we... Our church, we don't have a lot of like religious relics. We we don't have like a lot of things that we would consider that would be the equivalent to the vessels in the temple of God, which uh, Nebuchadnezzar seized to take back to Babylon. We, we don't really have anything like that. So I was trying to think this week what this would look like in in terms of us. And the closest thing that I could come up with, this would be like another nation coming into America and conquering us. And then just as a way of insult to injury, like we've already been conquered, but then in the way to to add insult to injury, if they were to take the Statue of Liberty and carry it off to wherever they are and put it in their harbor, it's it's like an an ever-constant reminder of you got beat. We own you. You're ours. It's just like, oh, you just kind of get that mental picture. However patriotic you are or are not, you can probably kind of understand. That's what it would be like for another country to, to besiege the United States and then take the, the, the kind of the symbol of what we are and who we are and put it somewhere else. Like that's kind of what it would feel like if we could get that mental picture and idea. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did to the kingdom of Jerusalem. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. All right, so just again, let me kind of unpack this for us a little bit. The people that Nebuchadnezzar commanded Ashpenaz to bring are part of the royal family, of the nobility, of people who have lived a life of privilege. They know what it means to have. You, you follow me? Like they, this is, this is huge. And, and they're being led away. He, he's, he's taking them out of Jerusalem. A couple of weeks ago, um, a little quick, back, quick story. My wife and I, we're getting ready to sell our house. We're going to try and sell our house. And so we're kind of trying to declutter, kind of clean it out to make it look like it has more space than it does. That kind of, yeah, you've done it. You know what I'm talking about. And so we're trying to fake somebody or trick somebody into buying it. Like, look at all this space. And it's never looked like this before ever. 
All right, so, so here's what I did. I went, into a, went to my, my kids. I have two little girls. I talk about them pretty regularly. Went to them. I said, all right, here's the deal. Um, you, can, you can keep 10 stuffed animals, and those will stay on your bed. And you can keep 20 toys. 20. Like, I thought that was like a, like, I felt like I was being generous. Like, you can keep 20 toys. They will all fit into the, the toy box so that when we're going to stage the house for somebody to come look at it, we can put all your crap away, and your room will be clean. Like, so you get, you get 10 stuffed animals. And 20 toys. So 30 things to play with total. They cried. <laughs> Only 20? I, I have never felt like a worse parent in my lifetime. Like, what am, what am I doing? What have I taught my kids this wonderful life of first world privilege? Like, I'm dying to take them on a mission trip so they get a little dose of reality. Like my, my family knows what it, live, what it means to, to live in a life of privilege. We ain't rolling in money, but I feel privileged. And apparently we're a little too privileged if 20 toys isn't enough to occupy the minds of my sweet little adoring children. So, so just kind of get, so maybe you can relate just a little. Maybe you can relate. You know, maybe 20 toys wouldn't be enough for you either. So this is Daniel. Life of nobility, royal family, privilege. He gets it. All right. Let's move on. Of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So he's going to change their names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So I kind of got looking at that this week and wondered, like, why, why do they have to get new names? And, and this is what I found, that each of, each of their names, Daniel's name means in, in Hebrew, God is my judge. And Mishael... His name means who is what God is. And Azariah means God has helped us. Ananiah means, or Hananiah means God has been gracious. And so, so their names, even, the, even Daniel and his three friends, their names were honoring to God. We're in reference to God. And so now they get new names. And each of their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar, they are all have to do with Babylonian gods. And so just kind of get this picture. Not only have, have these young men been taken out of their country, enslaved, brought in, taken out of their life of privilege, brought into this slavery thing, and put into this training system to become eunuchs and servants of the, the king of Babylon. But now not only have they taken them and defeated his God, and now they took 
took all the, the, the religious vessels and relics out of the temple. Now they get new names. They're not even identified by their God anymore. It gets worse. I, I did a lot of research this week on, on what it would have meant for, for Daniel and his three friends to, to walk through this, this training process, this indoctrination into Babylonian culture as they were going to become the servants of the king of Babylon. And here's what I found. It calls them young men. And the term that's used there in the Hebrew would have most likely denoted that these, these boys, I don't, know, I don't want to call them men, but maybe they were, 13 or 14 years old. You get, I mean, for those of you who have teenagers, I'm just going to get this picture in your head. 13 or 14 years old, part of the royal family, or of the nobility, living a life of privilege. Your country gets conquered. You get led away, maybe in chains. And to add insult to injury, they change your name. Everything you've known, it's gone. It gets worse. Most scholars agree that as part of, since they were under the leadership and authority of the chief of eunuchs, that they would have become eunuchs themselves. If if you don't know what that means, that means that Daniel and his three friends would have been emasculated. Maybe why later in the Bible we never hear about any of the four of them having children or even marrying. Because... Everything that would identify them as male, it's gone. Do you, do, you, do you get the gravity of that? Can you feel that? Men, can you imagine? You're 13 years old, led away from your home, in captivity, emasculated. Do you remember what it said in verse 2? Who did it? How did all this happen? God did it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And we come to verse 8. And it just just floored me this week as I I read this verse. Look at this. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. All of this God seemingly distant, absent, and removed. And Daniel resolved. Daniel made a decision. Still going to honor my God. I will not eat food that will defile me. I will not drink wine that will defile me. I choose to honor my God. I kind of got hung up on this word resolved and and what it means and what that looks like. And 
we actually, if you kind of dig back into the original language just a little bit, you get this, you get a word picture, which I love because it really helps me understand kind of what the, the author was trying to communicate. And this word resolved is this, a word picture of the gathering of a rope. So I was like, what does that mean? So I kind of got to thinking through it. And just, you, do you know, how, you know how they make a rope? Do you know what a rope is made of? A rope is made of a lot of strings, right? Like if you could, if you could see a rope before it was being made, I just imagine it would be like this, this long string of lots of little strings that couldn't do anything on their own. Scattered. Maybe some of you feel a little bit scattered in your situation right now. You just can't really take thoughts captive. Everything seems to be, there's just all this calamity in your life and everything very, feels very disconnected, very distant, very scattered. I, I can't really seem to, to get it all together. Like, like everything in, in my life is falling apart. That's what's going on with Daniel. Maybe you feel a lot like Daniel. Like nothing's going right for me. Maybe I'm not in captivity. Maybe nobody emasculated me. But Pastor Brian, everything in my life is falling apart right now. I'm in so much pain, I can't even see straight. And I feel like there's just all of this stuff around me, and I can't get a grasp on any of it. Here's what Daniel did. Daniel resolved. And I just get this, I get this mental picture of... Daniel looking at his life and all the, the streams of consciousness that he has to deal with and all of his circumstances and his situations, it says that Daniel resolved. And it's like he just grabs everything that's going on and he binds it into a rope. That's the word picture that the Bible, that he resolved, that he gathers all of that. And he puts a stake in the ground that says, I know that God is in this. And I don't know why, and I don't know where, and I don't know how, and I don't know when it's going to change. I don't even know if I'm going to survive this. But in a moment of boldness and confidence in the provision of God, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, and he would not dishonor his God. In the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, Daniel decided, just made a decision. And it sounds so easy because we make decisions all day, but this is, a, this is a pretty big decision. Daniel makes this huge decision in the midst of controversy and terrible circumstances and situation. That God is still God. He is still in control. And whatever he is trying to work out in and through my life is bigger than what I can see. And so I will trust not in what I can see, but in what I cannot see, which is the will and the plan of a God who I know and believe and trust is in control of everything. A lot of you probably heard the story of this pastor in Charlotte a few weeks ago, he was traveling home from a, from a wedding on the coast that he had done, I think for his sister, and he was traveling back, and he was in a traffic accident. He and his wife and their, I think it was a two-year-old son in the back seat. His wife was pregnant. And I don't really know the details of the accident, but, but somebody hit him with a box truck. All of them were seriously injured. And their two-year-old son lost his life. And they rushed the mom into surgery and they did an emergency C-section. They delivered this baby that wasn't full term. 
And then days later, the baby died also. It's tragic. So I went this week trying to figure out, like, what did he, what did he say? Because the, new, the, the news media was all over it. And here was this tremendous platform for a Christian. It doesn't matter that he was a pastor. He's a Christian. It's an incredible platform to do a lot of damage for the kingdom or to do a lot of good for the kingdom. I read his statement. Do you know what his statement was? It was the gospel. That was his statement. He said, yeah, we, we, forgive the, we forgive the guy that hit us. He made a mistake. And, and we, we forgive him. And the first part of his statement said, it was kind of hard to forgive him, but we did. And then it goes on and says, but actually, you know, it, it wasn't really all that hard. Because we've been forgiven. We believe and trust and have faith in a God that saved us when we didn't deserve forgiveness. And so we choose to extend that which has been given to us, and we, we forgive him. You know what that is? It's a resolve. That's taken the terrible circumstances and, tra- and, and a tragedy in life and gathering it into one thought. God is still God. He's still in control. He still loves, and the pain that I am experiencing right now is part of something bigger than what I can see. And so we choose, in a moment of terrible hurt and grief, to forgive. That is a life resolved to trust in God despite circumstances, and I am grateful for that man in his life and for his testimony. Because there were a lot of people that got to hear that story as a result. And through terrible tragedy, God received glory. Isn't that awesome? How God can take the worst possible circumstances in your life and get glory from it. You should read the rest of the first. We're not going to read the rest of the first chapter of Daniel today, but you should see how Daniel's story plays out in the first chapter of Daniel. He he goes on. He he asks the chief of the eunuchs, hey, I don't want to eat that food, and I don't want to drink that wine. Give me another option. You should read how it ends. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Go read it. It's a great book. You should read it, like like all of it, but but Daniel 1 today or this week. So, So here's the answer to the question. We started with the question. Right? How do I prevent a crisis in my life from becoming a crisis in my faith? And the answer is that I make a decision, either in or before my crisis, to trust God, believing that there is a purpose for my pain. Because that's when God gets the most glory. You guys have heard me say before that I kind of like math. I like to put things in an equation. It's like an if-then, if-and-then kind of thing. I love that stuff. It helps me think about life and really helps as it pertains to a lot of things in Scripture. Here's what I've figured out. God is very passionate about his own glory. The, the, The master plan that God is working out for all of us, that all of us are involved in, is part of God's plan to receive glory. Do you know when God gets the most glory? 
when his grace is most evidently on display. Do you know when God's grace is most evidently on display? It's in your greatest time of need. So if you put all that together, here's what you get. Do you know when God gets the most glory? Is when you're in your deepest part of need. In your deepest season of hurt. That is when the potential for the most amount of glory to be given to God our Father as we depend on His grace to see us through it instead of our own strength. So the next time that you're in a trial and you're in a trouble, I want you to think about this, that the greater the struggle, the more the glory. And not just for God. It's not just for his benefit. This is, it's not just that you know, God puts us in trouble so that he can only get glory. No, it works out something for you and I also. God deserves all the glory that could be had. Please don't, don't mishear me. God deserves the glory. God has, he loves us. He created us. He has saved us. He has given us a relationship with him who is in control of all things. And in him, we get the opportunity to put faith and trust in that which we cannot see. But our faith and trust works out something for us that we don't get to see this side of eternity. You see, Daniel knew what the apostle Paul would later go on to teach us and to pass on to us. And it's found most clearly, I believe, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Now, I want to read this kind of slowly with, with some emphasis so we can get this. Because this is the purpose in your pain. And whatever it is that you're fighting through and whatever it is that you're struggling with and whatever, whatever crisis that you are in or that you're headed into or that you just came out of, there is a purpose for it. And here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen. As we look not to the things that are seen. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, (laughs) they're, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a purpose in your pain. There's a purpose in your crisis. So my hope is that today would serve as an opportunity for you and I to put a stake in the ground, to gather our rope of resolve, to make a commitment right now. Right now, in this moment, God, I trust you. And I don't trust you because I can see what you're doing. I don't trust you because I understand. I don't trust you because 
I get it because I'm good with it, because I welcome the hurt. God, I trust you because I believe that what you are doing in my life is part of something bigger that I cannot see. Something that's not transient or temporary. Something that's eternal. So what I'm going to ask you to do right now is just bow your heads. Close your eyes. And I want you to I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I willing? Am I willing to trust that which I cannot see? so that I may reap the benefits of that which is eternal. Am I willing to trust in that which I cannot see to reap the benefits of that which is eternal? Ultimately, it's a matter of trust. Do you trust him? I know that's a difficult thing to to ask. It's a difficult thing to, to maybe even wrap your mind around. So here's what I would here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. Could we turn the house lights back up just a touch? That's good. Thank you. If you would say right now, the quietness in this moment, if you no, nobody looking around, no, no hands, no, no, nobody looking but me. You say, Pastor Brian, I want to trust him, but I don't know how. I want to trust him, but I can't see past my pain. I want to trust him, but I don't, I, I'm having a hard time letting go of what I can see. Would you pray for me? If that's you right now, would you just just lift your hand? Pastor Brian, I need you to pray for me. I don't understand. I need somebody to pray for me. Would you pray for me? Thank you. Hands all over the room. Amen. You can put them down. So let me pray. God, God, I've heard some of the stories. I know these people. And I love them. I know that you love them. sometimes it's really hard to feel your presence and to to focus on those things that are so far beyond our understanding God it's, it's easy to be blinded by our hurt by our circumstances by that which we know you're calling us to but we don't want it it's not where we want to go or what we want to do God, right now, I ask you, I beg you, I plead, God, before you, God, you would bring healing. You bring healing in the time that you need to bring healing, but God, if there is whatever it is that you need from our pain, God, I pray that you get it. 
Because God, I, I trust you. I believe that you are working out for us an eternal weight of glory that we cannot see. So God, in this moment, would you help us to see? And when we cannot see, God, we pray that you would help us to trust. Trust in you. Faith in your provision. That you are working out all things, God, for your glory and for your purposes. So, God, we thank you. We thank you, God. As hard as it is to say thank you in the midst of pain, God, we say thank you. Because we trust you. We love you. We pray it in Jesus' name.